This is The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger. The Political Insider is your inside source on politics from the White House to the State House and all points in between. If it's in the headlines, The Political Insider will have the story. Let's get started. Here's Bill Ballinger. Welcome, weekend political warriors. Item number one, term limits has reared its head in the state capitol in Lansing. Now, term limits is the ballot proposal that back in 1992 was approved by the voters of Michigan by nearly a 60% margin that limits the terms of governors of Michigan to two four-year terms, lieutenant governor two four-year terms, secretary of state two four-year terms, attorney general two four-year terms, and three two-year terms for members of the State House of Representatives and two four-year terms for members of the State Senate. They also threw in Congress and tried to limit the terms of people who are members of Congress, but the federal courts threw that provision out on the grounds that only the U.S. House under the federal Constitution has the right to determine the qualifications of its own members, including length of service. So that was thrown out. But everything else I described was put in place. And there are only two ways that what has been in place now, stop and think about it, for almost three decades can be changed, and that is either a petition drive to get a sufficient number of signatures to put it on a ballot, statewide for the voters to decide whether they want to change or rescind term limits, or there could be a two-thirds majority in the state House of Representatives and two-thirds in the state Senate. doesn't require the governor's signature, and it could go on the ballot then. The problem is, obviously, in the legislature that the Republicans are in the majority, but they don't have a two-thirds majority. They would need Democratic votes. And for that matter, you know, when the Democrats have controlled one house, uh, for instance, the state house they did between 2006 and 2010, they were in the majority. And so any number of votes arriving at two-thirds of the membership of each chamber would have to be put together from members of both parties in whatever combination. That's a tough thing to do. Um The proposal that they're talking about, apparently, and there's a real question of whether this is ever going to reach the point where it comes to a vote and ever actually does get on the ballot, let's say in 2020, is uh, do you lengthen the terms of legislators to beyond 14 years? Because right now that is the extreme uh, limit of legislative service. You could serve three two-year terms in the House, You could go over and be elected to four-year terms in the Senate. That's six plus eight equals 14. So do we keep the number maximum served in both chambers at 14 under a change to term limits, uh, making it maybe more flexible, like you could serve seven two-year terms in the House, or you could serve three four-year terms in the Senate, or maybe even four four-year terms in the Senate, totaling 16 years, just two years more? Uh, Or do you completely get away with term limits whatsoever and go back to the good old days before 1992 
uh, when dating all the way back to 1837, when Michigan became a state, we had unlimited terms of service if people actually wanted to serve that long. Uh, they would have to be reelected. Uh, that's what some people to say today should really be term limits. Uh, if you don't like somebody in office, vote them out of office. That's the way to get rid of them. You don't have to artificially cap their length of service. If people in a particular district like somebody well enough, they can keep uh, trying to reelect them and reelecting them. Now, there are some reform groups out there, particularly voters, not politicians, that put the proposal to on the ballot in November of last year, that was to create an independent apportionment or redistricting commission for legislative lines and congressional lines after the next census uh, is taken uh, next year, 2020. And they are reform-minded, not just with respect to Uh, what they perceived as gerrymandered maps here in Michigan for the legislature and for the congressional delegation, but other areas like transparency in government, like getting rid of what are called lame duck sessions of the legislature. That means meeting by the legislature in the seven-week period between the end of a general election and the end of the year and even-numbered years when legislators who are uh, some of whom not going to be accountable to the people because they're term limited and they're going to be out of office can do a lot of mischief in the sense they would vote for things that they wouldn't dare vote for if they knew they had to face the voters again. So the VNP people, voters, not politicians, would like to get rid of that. They would like to get transparency in government. They would like to have financial disclosure. Uh, they would like to have a lot more things with regard to the ethical dimensions of public service, and they are willing to uh, help uh, the legislators uh, come up with a proposal that they could all agree on and pull together on and, and support together to either amend or rescind term limits. Uh, there are other people out there who are not so sanguine about repealing or amending term limits. Uh, They're the people who liked uh, term limits in the first place when it was enacted back in uh, 1992 by a vote of the people. And they resist any attempt to tamper with the term limits law. I should also mention that back on the other side with BNP and the legislative leaders is the Michigan Chamber of Commerce, the business organization for the state, which is opposed to most things that BNP is for, but... Uh, the chamber is on board with amending or rescinding term limits, and they have been for a long time. So let's see if they can pull things together. Uh, There's debate going on behind the scenes. There's not any hurry in getting this done right now. It doesn't have to be done until next year, for that matter. In the spring or summer, there will be a deadline in terms of number of days that are needed by the Secretary of State to process this and get it on the ballot in time for the November general election uh, for a vote of the people. But this seems to be the most serious attempt uh, to do something about term limits. Uh, Item number two, we're running out of time in this segment, but I'm just going to mention, according to the most recent 
spin, let's call it, by the Capitol Press Corps, the new definition of progress at the Capitol uh, on the question of the budget and the governor's vetoes and whether to uh, put the money back in the budget by legislative leaders uh, haven't stopped talking each other. In other words, progress, the new definition is that the sides haven't stopped talking to each other. Uh, Is this par for the course, or is this somewhat unusual, or is it downright weird that this would be a description of progress? Well, I would say it's the wrong question to ask. Ask whether the word progress has any meaning whatsoever in this context. And the answer is no. The governor and Republican legislative leaders have been talking to each other off and on for nine months. And what has come of it? Nothing. It's ironic that in the week of mourning following the death of former Governor Bill Milliken, whose governorship Gretchen Whitmer has said she wanted to model her tenure on, she has done precisely the opposite. Milliken was the ultimate consensus builder. He never would have allowed what is going on right now. Most of his time in office, he served under exactly the conditions Whitmer is now, with a legislature controlled by the opposition party. He always found a way to make it work for 14 years. Whitmer, I hate to say it, has flubbed the job in her first test. He appears to have no clue. We are going to talk in the remaining portion of the program with three people who worked for Governor Bill Millick during his record 14 years in office back in the 1970s. Stick with us. You're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger on MTN. Here's Bill. We have returned, and we have our first guest who toiled in the vineyards and in the trenches for Governor Bill Milliken when he was governor back from 1969 through 1982. This man was uh, at the right hand of the governor. He was essential to everything the governor accomplished, particularly at the end of his term. And that is Doug Roberts. Doug Roberts, welcome to The Political Insider. Bill, it's my pleasure to be with you today. Can you describe to our listeners exactly what jobs did you hold for Governor Milliken over time? Yes, I worked for Governor Milliken for his last five years of his tenure. Uh, so that's including all of 78 through 82. Um, I started off as the director of what we called the Office of Revenue and Tax Analysis. Um, that was a job that made estimates about the economy, made estimates in terms of cost of things. Um, then I, I became, I left that, and they asked me to become the very first director of the Office of State Employer, which is the position that negotiates contracts for, on behalf of the state with state employees. Um, I then went on to become the deputy budget director, uh, and that's the position I held through the end. Um, and um, it was a privilege to work for him. So you worked for Dr. Strange Tax, is that right, maybe? Dr. Jerry Miller, yes, I did. <laughs> well, look, you face a lot of tough times during your five years. Uh, tell us what you remember about that time, and in particular the things that stand out. Uh, well, the the, um, the thing that most stand out is how well uh, Governor Milliken handled truly a very, very difficult situation. 
people today, I think, just don't remember or, you know, or forget uh, that in 1982, which was the last year of Governor Milliken's tenure, um, the, the national economy, and Michigan was no exception, were going through a very terrible time. But I have to put uh, numbers on this so people understand. The U.S. unemployment rate um, was 9.7%. Michigan unemployment rate for 1982 was 15.6%. And frankly, part of Flint could have been as high as 25 and, you know, I'm not afraid to use the D word. It was depression in some parts. Uh, it was a terrible time. Uh, the economy was just in the tank. And this is not very funny, but you have to have some dark humor at the time. Uh, that used to be the expression, well, the last one out, please turn off the lights. Right. Absolutely. It's staggering. I mean, we see the figures uh, even from the most recent uh, Great Recession of a decade ago, and everybody says, oh, my God, this is the worst thing since the Great Depression of the 30s. Well, actually, there are some figures there in 1982 that were even worse. Oh, yeah, it was terrible. It was terrible in Michigan. Now, if, if, if you don't mind, Bill, I'd like to go on and indicate that uh, I was with the governor as we were, the governor was trying to, I was trying to, to do the best we could to work with the governor and work out of this very difficult situation. Um, at that time, and it isn't much different, but it isn't used as often, when revenues did not come up to estimates, uh, the governor then issued what was called an executive order. And the executive order was literally a cut in budgets, and it could be either a specific line or it could be just some department will be cut by 5%. And that executive order was then had to be approved by the two appropriation committees. And at that time, the, the Democrats controlled both the House and the Senate, uh, and obviously the governor was Republican. And um, it was very difficult, and the governor... Oh, disliked it intensely. And so in January of that year, uh, the governor issued an executive order. It was very difficult, but it got passed. Literally a month later in February, the economy continued to go down. We issued an, another executive order, and the governor was always gentlemanly, but he was very stern at this meeting and said basically, cut more than you need. I don't want to do this again. Well, in the third month, I had the privilege of going to explain to the governor that we had to cut the budget one more time. Uh, it was a very uncomfortable conversation for me because I admired this gentleman a great deal. I felt, frankly, we had let him down. I thought that maybe getting fired uh, would, have been, would be a good thing because it wouldn't hurt anymore. And anyway, we discussed the meeting, and when the meeting was over, I was, it was on my face. I was clearly down. The governor comes up to me, puts his arm around me, and says, if I have to stay here, so do you. And I thought to myself, this is a guy that I will do anything for. He was a terrific leader. He certainly inspired people. And I think he inspired me to do a better job for the rest of my life. So all I can say was um, it was, you know, it was just special to work for him. I want to go one more step, however, if you don't mind. Absolutely. And that is people will say, well, well Doug, if he didn't like cutting the budget, why didn't he propose a tax increase? But he did. Right. In 1982, he proposed a full one percentage point increase in the Michigan income tax, which would have taken from 4.6 to 5.6%. And the legislature would only adopt an effect a half of 1% uh, for the year. And then on top of that, didn't make it permanent. 
And so, therefore, it expired at the end of 1982. And, of course, now we know the rest of history. Governor Blanchard came in, and he had to deal with the issue. But, but Governor Milliken was, 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 was courageous. He was tough. Um, he was willing to cut if he thought he had to, but if he, cut, if he thought the cuts were too much, he was willing to raise taxes. He, he was truly a remarkable man. Isn't there another story not connected necessarily with the budget when he had you go down and visit some kind of an auto plant in Trenton? Can you tell uh, yes. us about that? Yes, that was, uh, that was a story in which um, um, the governor called me one day directly, and often he did not. He often called uh, the budget director, Jerry Miller, but this particular day he called me and said, I'd like you to go down and uh, check out the Trenton engine plant. And somebody said, why? At that time, there was a Chrysler bailout that was the first one. Lee Iacocca was chair, and, um, and a lot of people didn't approve of the bailout because Michigan was going to put up $150 million of, 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 of over a billion dollars that was ultimately going to be lent to Chrysler to, for, the, for the bailout. And what they were going to use as collateral was called the Trenton Engine Plant. And uh, so I, um, um, I went down, I looked at it, I came back. I can, I can only assume that he had the state police following us because <laughs> I got into my office. Literally, I had not sat down. And the phone rang, and it was Governor Milliken. And he said, Doug, I'd like to see you. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, I'll be right there, sir. So I was in a different building, so I had to go over to the Capitol. Went to his um, uh, office, and um, there was only two of us there. Um, and so this is my side of the story. And he said, what's your report? And I said, you know, Governor, they say it's an engine plant. You know, it's, if that's what, and he said, but is it okay? And I said, yes, sir, it is. Okay, that's fine. I thought that was a little strange, but all right. So I left, and on the way home that night on the radio, um, a newscaster says, today the governor's office announced that state officials have inspected the Trenton engine plant and found it to be Okay. <laughs> Well, you did the job, Doug. I, I guess mean, so. You, you had more insight into automobile manufacturing than you thought. That's right. That's true. But but he was it truly it was truly terrific uh, to work for. And um, the um, uh, this this I mean that was a cute story. But the fact of the matter is, he really did um, inspire people. He really was courageous, um, and he was he was compassionate. I mean, he truly remarkable individual. Absolutely. Listen, Doug Roberts, those are tremendous insights into the closing years of the Milliken administration. Thank you so much for being our guest on The Political Insider, Doug Roberts. Thank you, Bill. This is MTN, and you're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger. Here's Bill. We are back, and we have got another great guest who will reminisce about former Governor William G. Milliken, who died a week ago, March 18th, late in the afternoon. Uh, excuse me, October 18th, late in the afternoon, um, and is being mourned here in Lansing. Uh, this guest is Charlie Greenleaf, who worked for the governor when not only was he governor, but before that, when he was lieutenant governor. A lot of people forget that Governor Milliken was lieutenant governor for four years from 1965 through the end of uh, 68 and into 69. 
Charlie Greenleaf, welcome to the Political Insider. Pleased to be here. Well, Charlie, just tell us, when did you go to work for Governor Milliken? Uh, were you from Michigan? How did you happen to come in? What was going on? I came to work for Lieutenant Governor Milliken in early 1968. And uh, George Romney, of course, was governor. And uh, I had lived uh, in, grown up in Indiana, but also uh, we had a family cottage in Michigan, so I was familiar with Michigan. But uh, I wanted to go to work in state government and been interested in public policy and particularly interested in education. And the governor, lieutenant governor, that is, hired me as essentially his research assistant. He had a four-person office, and uh, I was brought in as a research person for a year. And then, of course, he became governor in 1969, and I worked with him first as his education advisor, and he had a small policy staff of about half a dozen of us down in the ground floor of the Capitol. It's now part of the uh, room where you go if you're going to have a tour of the Capitol. We were in a little group of uh, offices down there. And I did that for from 69 to 71 into 71 and then went away to grad school and then came back in another capacity as his chief legislative person in 1973 and 74. So those were the two tours of duty with the governor when he was governor, plus the year before that. Right. Well, one quick thing I'm just curious about. During 1968, when you first came to work for him, he was lieutenant governor. Was there any thought in the office or on his part even that he may have expressed to you or his staff that Governor Romney was going to leave? Uh, Because that actually is pretty unusual for a Michigan governor to resign in the middle of his term, which Governor Romney did in early 1969 to go down and join the cabinet of Richard Nixon and Governor Milliken on about January 20th, 69 became governor. How, you know, soon before that fateful date arrived, did you actually know that was going to happen? Oh, I didn't. I wasn't brought into that at all. And I had no idea that that would happen. Uh, Governor did. And perhaps his top, uh, aide, uh, Don Gordon, uh, who was an old friend of his from up in the Traverse City area and a newspaper publisher. Uh, but I wasn't aware of it at all. So it was a surprise to me when Milliken became governor overnight, and uh, that was a very, very quick transition. Well, did your role change substantially? You mentioned working with this group of half a dozen people down in the cubby holes in the first ground floor of the state capitol. Um, did your, you know, work uh Changed substantially once uh, he was governor rather than lieutenant governor, and and what happened? What were you really well, responsible for other than education? Absolutely, one of the main projects I had worked on when I was with the lieutenant governor was monitoring the many teacher strikes that were taking place in Michigan during that time. So I'd become involved in education. I was interested in education, but of course the lieutenant governor's role generally is fairly limited. But when he became governor and he selected a group of us to work with him on his policy subjects, all of us really young people, I was in my late 20s, uh, I became the uh, education advisor in his office, and I would actually sit in on the State Board of Education meetings when the governor didn't attend, and he rarely attended. Uh, And we worked on a major uh, education policy for example, that first year, which uh, most people don't remember it particularly. It was a 
less successful effort than, say, the environmental initiatives that developed over Milliken's governorship. But he set up a commission right at the beginning of his uh, governorship to uh, look at education reform of the K-12 system and change the funding system. And what was remarkable about it was not just the result, but he insisted on being the chairman of this Blue Ribbon Commission. Everybody on the staff told him, you shouldn't do that. You should have a citizen's commission, and then you can take what you want from their list. He said, no, I'm going to be the chairman. I'm going to be responsible for whatever the commission comes up with. And when they came up with their uh, package of proposals, and he had his education address before the legislature, just about 50 years ago this week that this happened, uh, it was on the front page of the New York Times and other national press let alone in Michigan, because it completely overhauled the funding of of, uh, K-12 education, set up a statewide property tax. The state was going to fund teacher salaries, have basic skill tests. And uh, it was very controversial, including a section of aid to non-public schools. And this was really what engulfed uh, my work and, in many ways, what the governor was doing in those first couple of years. You know, it's really fascinating. People forget how long the struggle was to reform the financial formula for funding K-12 education in Michigan until Proposal A passed in 1994. And so this was like literally, you know, almost 25 years before that you were grappling with this and trying to come up with a solution. It sounds to me like the most significant thing that came out of that politically was what was known as parochiate, right? Aid to non-public well, of schools. course, that was that was significant too. But it it was overturned in a constitutional amendment that was passed by the vote of the people several years later. Right. So that that got sidetracked. But for example, the MEEP tests that have been so controversial, we were really either the first or the second state. I think the first to really set up a statewide basic skills funding system, and I worked hard on that went down to ETS in Princeton to help work up the test with, along with the State Department of Education people. And, uh, and of course, the, uh, the funding was battled over in the legislature back and forth for a number of years. And, and uh, it was, in, in part, a success in the end, as you pointed out later on, even after Milliken was governor. But he got some reforms through that Jim Phelps, one of my colleagues who came on board after I went off to grad school and 1971. Uh, he'd worked on the commission, and he became the governor's education advisor. He was an expert on funding. He worked with the governor. And the governor, you know, had a reputation of being a gentleman and very polite to everybody, but he was tenacious in the subjects that he worked on, and education was certainly one of them, even though in the environment ultimately was a more successful initiative as his uh, governorship developed over the 14 years. Right. And you stuck with the governor through the 1970 election, which he won in a close race with Sander Levin. And then I think in 1971, as you just indicated a few minutes ago, you left uh, the governor's service to do other things uh, outside Michigan. But then you came back in, in what, 1973 and served the end of 74. When when I left in, uh, early 71 to go off to grad school uh, to study economics, uh, the governor said to me, 
that he was worried that my idealism that I brought to the job <laughs> in the first place yeah. was being overtaken by cynicism. <laughs> and I said, well, I don't know, Governor, if that's true, but, but perhaps he hired me back in 1973 to work on the legislature because he thought it would be better to have somebody who had more of a cynical tilt to him than, than an idealistic tilt dealing with the legislature. Of course, you were in the legislature at that time, yeah, and uh, you and I worked together. Uh, and I finished out the term that had been started by another person, Keith Molan, and then he took a, another job, and I was brought in to finish that term, uh, which led up to the 1974 election. Yeah, well, of course, the governor himself served in the legislature, and uh, I can see how he might be suspicious that you had become cynical, <laughs> just based on his own experience. But you were not. That's right. You still have your idealism. Thank you very much, Charlie Greenleaf, a key aide to Governor William G. Milliken, the late William G. Milliken. Thank you, Charlie Greenleaf. Enjoyed the conversation. Bye. You're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger on MTN. Here's Bill. We are back for one final segment, and we have got a great guest here. Keith Molin uh, is very familiar with the former late Governor William G. Milliken, both on the political side during political campaigns um, and in government service as well. Uh, working for the governor. Keith Malin, welcome to the Political Insider. Thank you very much, Bill. Appreciate the invitation. And let's start out. I mean, I think you really got to know Governor Milliken beginning around 1964. Is that correct? Go ahead and tell us what happened. My, my first acquaintance with him was in 1964. I was driving from Detroit to Lansing listening to a radio broadcast in the news when the announcement came that the lieutenant governor, that the uh, senator from Traverse City was going to announce his candidacy for lieutenant governor, and it was going to be that morning in the Capitol building. And I kind of raised my eyebrows up. That's interesting. Came to Lansing, walked into a restaurant to grab breakfast, and there was Senator Milliken sitting at the counter. He looked up at me and smiled and said, how's the Rockefeller campaign? And I said, let's talk about another one that I understand is going to start. We shook hands. He invited me to the press conference where he declared his candidacy, and that was where it all started. Then moving in, and our roles overlapped a great deal. I was on George Romney's gubernatorial campaign staff, re-election staff. Milliken was nominated for governor. We got to know each other on the campaign trail, but where we really came to know each other and about each other was when I got a telephone call from him in 1970 asking me whether or not I would have any time to devote to his political campaign for governor. And I said, well, governor, whatever I don't need to use to make a living is yours. What can I do for you? And he said, well, I was kind of thinking about full-time, and that ended up in being invited to become his campaign manager in 1970. Wow. And that's, that's where we got very serious. Now, let me, let me make a point here because I think it's critical. I, I knew that I was not Bill Milliken's first choice to be his campaign manager. In fact, I knew I wasn't his second choice. I was at best his third and probably his fourth. 
none of that bothered me because what I had come to know about the men made me very proud to be invited, excited about the assignment, and terrified at the responsibility. I've never started a job where I was as frightened of the job as I was there because I knew then from my experience with them, this was a special kind of individual. The first meeting that we had to talk about campaign management and campaign style was a small group of us, and the governor addressed me face-to-face and eyeball-to-eyeball and said in the presence of all others to hear, Keith, I want you to remember, we are not in this campaign to win an election. We are in this campaign to earn the privilege to govern. And I want to tell you that room went dead silent. But we had all learned the first of what would be many life lessons from Bill Milliken and how he prioritized it. He was tough. He was determined. He was resolved. He knew who he was. He knew what he wanted done. And he made sure we knew how he wanted it done. Uh, that That was the outset. And from there... I became his legislative his legislative liaison. Uh, that led to a little break after uh, the sixty four after the the uh, campaign. Then in seventy four, I be, after the seventy fourth campaign, I became his director of labor. And at the end of that term, I became the director of commerce. And that's where I was when I left government service and went on to life at the University of Michigan, out of the political world in terms of partisan politics and into public policy and public relations on behalf of the university. But the relationship with Bill Milliken never ended. It was not uncommon and always well-received to get a telephone call saying, give me your best thinking about, and then he would pick your brain. He may or may not tell you where he was going or where he was going to head, but you knew that everything that he would talk to you about, anytime he would ask you a question, you knew there was something behind it, and you knew that it was worthwhile waiting to find out what it was. One other last kind of wraparound statement, Bill, that there was never a fight too tough for Bill Milliken to take on. And the thing that was so unique, and you learned it quickly, the more serious the issue, the more critical the decision, the calmer he was, the more resolved that he was. He didn't get excited. He never got distracted. He would speak in slow, slow soft terms, and you just simply knew where this was on the priority. He led. He never badgered anybody. He led. He, he said what he believed, and he owned what he said, and he was the easiest person and the most serious person with whom I have ever worked, no question about it. Yeah, you know, one thing that people forget or don't realize is that most of his 14-year tenure as governor, uh, he had a legislature, both houses, the Senate and the House, controlled by the opposition party, the Democrats, the only other governor in history who had that situation, it was the opposite. It was G. Men and Williams. Soapy Williams was a Democratic governor and had four, excuse me, 12 years of Republican control of the legislature. 
So those two men, out of all our governors and all our history, 180 years, they are the ones that had to deal most with a legislature controlled by entirely their opposition party. Do you think that made any real difference to Bill Milliken and the way he governed? Uh, a lot of people who are Republicans today, much more conservative, obviously, than he was, uh, they don't think that he was really a true Republican. Uh, but I've always thought, look, if you had to deal with a legislature controlled by the opposition party, most of the time you're in office, you're going to have to conduct yourself differently than if you're a Rick Snyder and you got a legislature controlled by your own party, don't you? Well, I think that that, that separates those two governors from the field. The first year that I was the governor's legislative liaison, every single Republican member of the House of Representatives would start their, in, their discussion with me when I went in to introduce myself was, you know, I'm going to be supportive of the governor, but I want you to know that I got more votes in my district than he did. <laughs> in other words, I'm not a given, okay? Right. But he, he could erase that gap, and, and it was easy to get it erased. There was only one, there was one representative who did not draw as many votes in his district as the governor had. All the other Republicans had outdrawn the governor in that district. But if you look back at his role when he was a state senator, he worked both sides of the aisle. And, he, you know, he just didn't count R's and D's. He was looking for people who saw the issue or the opportunity the same way he did and then found a way, regardless of where you came from, how to stand in the same place, join arms, and get this job done. I, I think it may, have, it may have had some impact on how he went about, how he went about. The other thing that you need to know and remember in keeping that in context, he never really had an open warfare with any of the majority party's leadership in either house when the Dems were in charge. They would disagree, but it was never personal, and it was always in search of the common ground. So I, I think it was his style because he was believable. Did you work as a, as a state senator while he was governor, and you worked in his administration? And was there ever any doubt in your mind about where he stood and why he stood there? Not because it was a Republican bill, but because it was the right thing to do? Or not, he didn't oppose it because it was a Democrat bill. He opposed it because he thought it was bad public policy, and he was very, very convincing in that because he was very, very sincere. But it, it does make him unique, no question about it. Yeah, his mantra was uh, good policy makes good politics, right? Yep. And I, I heard him go so far one day saying good policy makes the best policy. Right. He used, he made, he used that on me one day when I was hard to persuade that, there was not a political cost here that was too too high to pay. He persuaded me. Right. Listen, Keith Malin, that is a fantastic uh, sweep of history that you've given us uh, from the time you first met Governor Milliken uh, back in 1964 and all the way up until almost the time of his death just a week ago on October 18th. Keith Malin, a former key Republican operative and Milliken appointee and supporter Keith Malin, thanks for being on the Political Insider. 
opportunity to be part of the program, the show, and the history. Thank you.